0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com/slash style.
1: The time men in Lyft scowled at us, made sidebar comments, there were names for us all. Even simple things I remember wearing trousers to work which I'd done for years and people staring at me and I'm thinking don't they match you know (laughs) at that moment it's my fly (laughs) undone. like what is it what have I done toilet paper on the shoe like (laughs) what is going on here
2: welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas.
3: We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering
2: women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, then come on over to our website at don'tstopusnow.co and sign up for our community with some awesome things planned for this year. Now for this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode
3: featuring one of Australia's leading businesswomen, the remarkable and inspiring
2: Anne Sherry. Anne really is amazing. I think you're just going to love her. But before we dive in, we've got some exciting news, don't we? Yes, we do. Don't Stop Us Now has been selected as a finalist in the Best Newcomer category of the Australian Podcast Awards. Which we're totally thrilled about.
3: Yeah, we certainly are. You know, we put so much work into this podcast, so we really do appreciate it when we get feedback from listeners or validation in this sort of way. And it just really reinforces that
2: what we're doing is worthwhile. On that note... If you're enjoying this show, then it really would mean so much to us if you could please hit the pause button now. Well, not quite now, because she's going to finish the sentence. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) And share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it. Reaching more people with the inspiring women we feature makes all of our hard work really worthwhile. Yeah, it really does.
3: And Claire, in case people don't know how to share a podcast episode, it's super easy. On iTunes, when you have the podcast or the episode playing or open, you just look for the three dots, you know, adjacent dots, dot, dot, dot. And they're either at the top or bottom right, depending on which page you've got. You click on those three dots and you'll see the option to share. And you can share via text, email or on social media too. So it's really easy.
2: And I'm sure it's pretty similar whether you're on Android or one of the uh, podcatchers. Now, back to today's episode. Great. Anne Sherry has notched up so many extraordinary achievements during her decades-long career to date that it's really hard to know where to start to introduce her. Suffice to say, Australian women have a lot to thank her for, as one of the things she's responsible for is introducing paid maternity leave to Corporate Australia and we'll hear all about how that happened shortly. We certainly will. And just to illustrate
3: the breadth and variety of her career, Anne also transformed the cruise industry, you know, shipping cruises in Australia as CEO of Carnival Australia, notching up double-digit growth every year whilst simultaneously navigating some pretty huge challenges in the business as well. Today, Anne is on multiple boards, including Carnival Australia, where she's the chairperson. She's also on the board of UNICEF Australia, one of the country's biggest banks, the NAB, as well as having had current and former international board roles.
2: Anne has many accolades for her extremely varied career today, including a Centenary Medal, an Order of Australia, and the overall winner of the Women of Influence Award in 2011. In this episode, you'll hear how having a baby with
3: Down syndrome at just 21 years of age didn't stop Anne from pioneering his care and and returning to work when he was still young. You'll hear how she's learnt to be resilient and not be phased by others judging her, why she thinks women need to take more risks, and why she controversially bought a host of brightly colored pantsuits shortly after becoming one of the first senior women at a major Australian bank.
2: Hilarious. And speaking of banks, near the end of the episode, we talk about how there's recently been a royal commission into banking here in Australia. For those of you outside of Australia, it's basically a court-based inquiry into misconduct, and it unearths some serious misconduct across the industry. So without further ado, please enjoy this fascinating discussion with Anne,
3: who manages to be both impressive and truly entertaining.
2: Anne Sherry, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. It's such a thrill to have you here today and we're really excited. Now, before we really delve into you and your career and your experiences, I wanted to just start with a question which is quite broad but just sort of sets a scene and that is, how would you
1: describe what you do today? Well, <laughs> how would I describe it? I guess I'd describe it now as... You know, the conventional way of describing it is a portfolio of activities. <laughs> uh, I would describe it as a set of activities, jobs, tasks, roles that give me breadth, that allow me to work on my passion projects as well as my commercial projects, and that allows me to bring a lifetime of learning and thinking about issues to a broad spectrum of organisations. So I'm everything from, you know, a non executive director on National Australia Bank, Sydney Airport, Palladium, which is a global business, to chairing UNICEF, which is obviously part global but very local, not for profit, to being on the board of Rugby Australia, because I think sport influences cultures in ways that we often don't understand how powerful it is. So I look for places where I can have impact and leverage what I've done before. And obviously, I'm chair of Carnival Australia, which is an extension of my previous corporate role.
2: Yeah. Wow. So you sound like a very busy woman. I have a lot
1: (laughs) that I'm doing.
2: (laughs) What does your average day look like? I'm just
1: curious. Is there one? It varies a bit now. So probably an average day would have, at the moment, would have, as I've done today, you know, some time in carnival in the morning, some phone calls with a couple of my non-executive director roles. I'm actually getting my hair cut this afternoon. Uh, so I've got to do, Very you know, personal maintenance. <laughs> then I've got another couple of phone calls towards the end of the day. It lurches from doing the stuff everybody does to, you know, moving from topic to topic, which just requires discipline. It requires me not to be too tired so I vague out and think I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) Uh, And I guess that's the sort of day. But, you know, some days I am at home. I don't get dressed up at all. I fiddle around the house. I do calls and things from home, do my emails at home. And those days, are, you know, feel quite luxurious, actually.
2: Yeah, I bet they do, particularly after a long corporate career. Yep. So you've had
1: this long corporate career,
2: but let, let's go all the way back and rewind all the way back to your childhood. What was it
1: like? Growing up? Yeah. I can barely remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in a country town in Queensland. You know, when you're a kid, you are where you are, I think. It's only on reflection. You look back at things that happen. So it was very free, very unconstrained. We walked everywhere. It was a small town. We knew everybody my parents had a shop in the middle of town. They were both pharmacists, so that was the pharmacy. We used to wander in and out of there. I mean, it was pretty liberating and liberated. And that sense of constraint really didn't kick in till we moved to Brisbane, which, you know, for us was the big city, and I got older. You know, parents got more anxious about us the older we got, probably for good reason. <laughs> what did you want to be when you were growing up, you know, in a professional sense? Yeah, it's an interesting question. All my family are in health. So my parents are chemists, my uncles and aunts who are doctors and nurses, everyone was in health. So like lots of people who grow up in families where everybody does something, that's what everyone channels you to. So there was probably a lot of emphasis and a lot of talk about that as the pathway, doctor, pharmacist, something. And that was not explicit, but it was an assumption. And of course, it was what I knew I didn't know lots of other things were even available. So focusing on health was a gift because it got me into maths and science. And the fact that I ended up not going down the health pathway completely, I did when I first left school, but left it pretty quickly, gave me plenty of other options. So it opened my options, even though it wasn't where I went.
2: Yeah. And because you started studying radiography. radiography and then you moved into economics. Yeah. And you met Michael, your husband? At university. At university, Mm -hmm. got married. Eventually. We didn't get married straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But not too long afterwards, yeah. And and then had a child. Yes. And that was when? All before I was
1: 21. All before you were 21. I can't imagine that was the plan. No. And I used to say when I was younger I was never going to get married. I wasn't interested in being trapped in marriage and, you know, I didn't think there were any decent men around. (laughs) All the things you say when you're younger. And I was lucky to meet... Really, the person who has been my soulmate when I was that age. I was also lucky that I recognized it because it would have been easy not to. We've been a very strong partnership for a very long time now. Yeah, absolutely. And you needed to be very strong, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. We faced adversity very quickly. Yeah. You know, we had to deal when I was 21 with our first child, which also was unplanned, and Nick was born with Down syndrome. So, Nobody expected it, least of all us, but actually nobody around us expected it either. And their view on it was you know, very negative and constraining and probably t- typical for the time. But we were, I'm very counter-suggestive. So as soon as someone says something can't be done, then my mission in life is to prove that wrong. What was their view on it? Well, the offer was that they would take Nick away straight away and we could just get on with our lives and have another baby. Gosh. Which I said no to, no thanks. And then the other was the prognosis was very negative. And partly as I look back on that was because kids with disabilities then were virtually all institutionalised. Nick's the first among that first generation of kids, particularly with Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities, who weren't locked up straight away or sort of disappear And so the expectations were low and their prognosis for him was terrible. We just said, no, 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 Nick is going to have the best opportunities, the best he can be. We thought we were having a baby. We've got one. It's not quite as we expected and we'll work it out. And literally that's what we've done. Incredible. And what kind of lessons did you learn at
2: that early stage? Because it must have been a very challenging experience at that
1: young age. I think the first thing we had to do was grow up really quickly. We were facing into things that we had no knowledge of at all. And we were up against a system that was very one-dimensional and locked into a view. So growing up was issue one. We had to fight our own families a bit as well because their expectations were pretty low. You know, they were shocked, et cetera. We had to manage friends who didn't know what we were doing or dealing with. And, you know, there was a lot of that that happened and that breaks. We saw lots of people who were much older than us, in fact, who were facing into the birth of a child with a disability whose marriages didn't survive, whose relationships Mm -hmm. fell apart. So we had to deal with that pretty quickly as well. But we set on a path. We agreed a pathway together. It's become a pattern in our lives that we learned then. So if you're facing into a hard thing, we hook together first and work out what our joint position in is and then we move forward together. And then if we are challenged along the way or one of us, you know, has second thoughts or whatever it is, we come back together because we worked out from that moment we were so much stronger if we were a team than if each of us was trying to deal with it from a different perspective. And that's been an amazing life lesson that you've the power of that team to face into anything it makes it seem possible because we've got each other's backs all the time.
2: Yeah.
3: I imagine you were fighting all kinds of things, including sort of the stereotype yeah. of what a Down syndrome baby, especially at that time, mm-hmm. could achieve.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: How did you
1: and your husband envision you know, him being the best he could be? Well, we didn't know where it was going to end, yeah. so it's you've got to just – do it a piece at a time Mm. and reinvent it a piece at a time because we challenge it all the time. A young social worker came to see me not long after Nick was born and burst into tears. I'm looking at her thinking, uh, hello, I'm the one who's just had the baby, not you. And she's going, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said to her, just go away leave me alone. I don't need someone over empathizing and crying. If you haven't got anything to offer me, I love the fact that you're so empathetic, but please go home and cry at home. But I did have good people around me. I actually had a friend who at the time was a student doctor and he gave me a book written by an eminent pediatrician called The Normal Child. Unfortunate title, but it was called The Normal Child. And what it did is it set out milestones for kids right through their lives. I read it and I thought, well, Nick's obviously going to not necessarily run at that pace, but there's no reason he can't hit those milestones at some point. So I actually used that as almost like a a secret guide because everybody else was talking about what he couldn't do. I was looking for what he could do. And there's a piece about, you know, Down's babies are born without very good muscle tone. I had him on a fit ball before everybody else thought fit balls were fun, doing sit-ups from the time he was about two months old, lying on his belly, forcing him to lift his head up. And so he stood and walked at about 14 months, which is not that long behind a regular milestone. Everyone was saying how cruel I was and I could see him thinking, oh, my God, we're on the fit ball again. But the reality was it's changed his posture. It set him up forever with strong core muscles and posture. And, of course, one of the stereotypes of kids with disabilities, they're soft, they can't control their bodies, they're overweight, you know, all of that stuff. So he doesn't fit that stereotype at all. And then the second thing was I want him to go to kindergarten. Kids go to kindergarten. First I put him into childcare and I ended up using family daycare because there was virtually no childcare when he was little. And this is because you went back to work? I went back to work, yeah. yeah. So that was the other thing. People thought I should you know, just throw in the towel now and you're home forever and it was like I don't think so. And so I went to our local kindergarten and said I'm enrolling him and they got that look on their face that people got and they were too terrified to say no to me. So they took the registration but the first day I turned up, there was a group of women at the gate saying, we don't want him here. And so I'm a fighter, right? So I just looked them in the eye and said, I don't know your kids, but I may not want them with my son either. (laughs) And they they just looked so shocked. The waters parted and in we went. Wow. That's incredible. And it got
3: you back into the next phase of Of your life, life, which was beginning your – what ended up becoming an extremely varied career – you know, I think if we share with listeners the quick sort of snapshot of everything from prison social worker to working for government, including the federal government working with the Prime Minister of Australia in the Office, for office name, of the Status, status, of, women. status yeah. of Women, exactly, yeah. and then being lured to join a bank and becoming a bank CEO before your most recent and last uh, executive role, which was CEO of a cruise company. How do you explain that variety? (laughs) Was there a a grand design behind it?
1: Well, clearly not. (laughs) You couldn't have designed that if you tried. (laughs) No, there wasn't a grand design really. And half those jobs I wasn't even aware of when I was younger, nor imagined that a woman could do them. The real story is I look for opportunity. I'm intolerant of jobs that I don't think I can see my way forward in. So sometimes I move jobs and industries because I'd come to the end of the line with that particular industry or job. So I'm not one of those people, and I say this to people often, that sits around hoping that the world around me is going to get much better and that maybe they will move on and I'll be okay. So I don't do that. If I've hit the wall, then I move. So that's one explanation. The second explanation is that interesting things have come to me and I take the risk. So jumping out of the public sector into the private sector, people thought I was mad to do, particularly into banking at that time, which was going through all sorts of reputational problems. Déjà vu. Yeah. And here we are again. But yes, yeah, so my colleagues in the public sector thought I'd cross to the evil empire. People in banks thought I was a public servant. What would I know? So everyone saw that as a big risk move, but I just saw it as an opportunity that may never come again. And so I do have a voice in my head that says, what's the worst thing that can happen if I do this? It's a great question, isn't it? And usually it is, it may not work and you may have to find another job, but that's not the end of life as we know it. So unless there's something really fundamental as I look into the face of what an an opportunity that may come to me, that's really the only question I have to answer. And then as time's gone by, the other question is, will anybody move with me (laughs) as the jobs became geographically more spread so we've moved a lot and as that's gone on Michael and I've had to have lots of conversations because he's had to change jobs because I got a new job and as we changed physical locations because of a job that I got he has had to decide whether he keeps doing what he's doing or whether he does something completely different and in the end he went into running his own business because it became harder and harder Mm. yeah but yeah. they, you know, they
3: were tough decisions as well. Thinking back to that first step from the public sector into <laughs> the corporate sector, the private sector, was that a serious shock to the system? Or
1: no, I did spend the first month thinking I'd made the worst mistake in my life. Partly because it was very unwelcoming, and I hadn't quite understood how much that would influence the way people dealt with me and the other women who came in. So there was actually a group of women who came into Westpac simultaneously. And Is that because they, they were trying to up
3: the uh, the ranks? Yeah, no, the CEO at the
1: time came from the US and said, where are the women? And there weren't any. He actually went to a big meeting in a room literally that had 100% men in it and said, like, where are the women? And everyone said, oh, we can't find any, there aren't any, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he, So he actually said to his executive team, every one of you, the next person you hire must be a woman. And so there was a group of us that came in together in different parts of the business, but still at the sort of level below the group executive. And that changed forever, the organisation. But at the time, men in Lyft scowled at us, made sidebar comments. There were names for us all. Even simple things. I remember wearing trousers to work, which I'd done for years, and people staring at me, and I'm thinking, don't they match? You know, you at that <laughs> moment, it's my fly undone. Like, what is it? What have I done? Toilet paper on the shoe? Like, <laughs> what is going on here? And then someone said, look around you. And then I realized the women didn't wear trousers.
3: Wow. I mean, this is the
1: mid 90s. This is not 1876. No. <laughs> and so the conservatism, and it's because women were junior in the organization, lots of them wore uniform, which were mm. of, at that time were all skirts as well. Mm. So there wasn't even any role modelling of flexibility about what you wore. Of course that was, you know, like a uh, red, rag, a red, red rag, rag. rag, yeah. So I went out and bought like five pantsuits in the brightest colours I could find and <gasps> wore them every day. <laughs> oh, I have uh, some so. of that in me, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> So it was a very challenging environment. But of course, you've just got to find the moment where it changes and then it changes forever. And there were a few sort of critical pivot points that changed it forever.
3: I'm sensing a theme here, you know, whether it's from the gate at the kindergarten or in the elevator at the bank wearing your trousers, of someone who is able to have a thick skin and not be deterred or undermined by thinking people are judging them negatively. How
1: have you managed to do that? Because I think a lot of us wish we could do that more. I think for me anyway, I'm clear about who I am and what I stand for. So there's something about being strong in your own core and thinking about who you are. Because people staring at me, it's like, so what? <laughs> I am pretty thick skinned about that because I think it's irrelevant. And while it's uncomfortable, it doesn't influence my view of who I am and it doesn't deter me from what I think I'm doing either. And so I think at the core of that is just who are you? If other people can knock you off your perch by staring at you or saying something terrible about you, then you've got to work out who you are in that because that means you're not anchored anywhere.
3: You were recruited to Carnival Australia, a cruise company, as CEO, and you had no travel experience. Do you think that helped you because, you know, your track record shows you created enormous change, enormous growth and transformed the cruise industry, certainly in Australia. Do you think and this is a a question from um one of our listeners actually who wondered whether that actually helped you create change in this new sector. It
1: perhaps did because I didn't come with the anchor of the all the custom and practice that goes with an industry you've been in for your whole life. However, I was specifically recruited in because the company was in so much trouble. The reputation needed to be rebuilt we were, you know, the front page of the papers every day for all the wrong reasons before I came in. And in my first week in the job, I had the report of a coronial inquest handed down day three in the job. And I was in front of a, you know, a wall of television and media talking about what we were going to do differently. So the opportunity to jump into an industry that had so much growth potential was in fact a great gift. And at the time it felt, again, you know, you jump industries and you go, oh, my God. I'd done all the rational thinking and we'd talked about it and all of that stuff. But the first couple of weeks in that job were an absolute nightmare, the coronial inquest findings. Then we had a ship in the northern Pacific off New Zealand hit by a 20-metre wave and it had to come to dry dock and we had to get 2,000 people from an island in the middle of nowhere. I mean, all of this is happening in my first week. Baptism of fire. But it was good learning. I did learn a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So all of that started to move along. We started to get growth. We bought more ships into the market. We changed the product. We do all the sort of businessy things, if you like. And then swine flu came to Australia. Yes, I remember. We had on one of the ships a family who had come back from Mexico where they'd been on holidays because they were frightened of getting swine flu because it broke out, if you recall, in that part of the Americas, And because they still had a week of their holiday left, they jumped on a cruise and their child had swine flu. Oh, my goodness. So that ship, you know, the health department calls it the index case. So that child infected all the other kids in the centre and they went into the kids' club. Kids in the kids' club, all the crew in the kids' club, then the crew infected other crew and then on it went. So we had a shipload of passengers, about a third of whom were completely exposed to swine flu, who then had to be put in quarantine on their return. And then we had a panic that suddenly all these people were everywhere and the ships had, were full of people. With, you know There was a panic yeah, fed by media largely, but there was a general panic in Australia when swine flu broke out and we were right front and centre of it. And so this was our moment to test whether we were doing the things that we said we were going to do. So from that first ship, everyone who was in quarantine, we put into five-star hotels for their two-week quarantine period. We got the health departments engaged all over Australia. We got vaccine. We vaccinated everyone on every ship, all the crew. We actually got straight onto the front foot to demonstrate that we were working with the Australian government to prevent the spread of swine flu.
2: And and during that time and other times where you're faced with these sort of uh, emergency situations or big decisions that you have to make with big things at stake, mm. do you ever you know, suffer from self-doubt or
1: imposter syndrome or mind games? I don't think you can. You've got to be clear about your course of action. So self-doubt is only before you act. Yeah. And to get over that, you've got to have your best people together in a room and people out from outside your business if you need it to make sure you've tested what are the knowns and maybe what are some of the potential unknowns, but you will never have tested everything. But you've got to test everything you think you can, and you've got to be clear that the course of action you've weighed up against the alternatives the best you can. And then once you commit, if you find you need to adjust, you've got to be prepared to adjust as well. But the moment for doubt is over from the moment you press your go button. The pressure of leadership is you can't know 100% that what you're doing is right, but once you commit to the course, you've got to have enough internal resolution and strength to keep pushing forward.
3: Do you think you've had to consciously adapt your style to give extra strength to
1: what you say or do because you're a woman and you want to be perceived more strongly? No. I think that's actually who I am. I, so One of the things people do say about me is if you see me at home or at the shops (laughs) and you see me in the office, I'm not two people, I'm one. So there's something about congruence, which I've often said to some of my male colleagues who I watch behave one way at work and I meet them socially, they're completely different people. I think, why don't you do that at work? So for me, I'm not playing a role. I am who I am. And You know, maybe there's a bit of, you know, there's an element of presenting in a way that I know worked for the audience, Mm. which sometimes you do when you're speaking to a largely male audience. There's a way of doing that. But I don't play at being two people. I'm not one person at work, one person for an audience. I, I moderate my messaging if I think it's more effective for a different audience, but that's just tactic that's not being or essence. No, or identity. But I'm sure our listeners would be interested in the tactics.
3: So what would you change if you were speaking to a mostly male audience in order
1: to really be effective? Well, sometimes it's less about gender and sometimes it's more about the content as well. So if I'm speaking to an audience of bankers who happen to be mostly male, and I learned this at Westpac because I've failed the first time I did it. And I've told this story a few times before. When I first argued up that we should do paid maternity leave at Westpac, I argued it on the grounds of fairness and equity and everyone's eyes glazed over. And I retreated very quickly before anyone said no. And I regrouped because I realized I had completely missed the audience. And I went back in a month later and I just rattled off essentially a business case. said, if we do it, If we lift our return to work rate from this to this, this is how much it costs us. This is what our turnover is. This is how much that costs us. So if we apply this policy, this is what it will save us. And everyone went, do it. It's as much as anything about understanding the trigger points for your audience and how to frame and how to frame the problem so they hear it. Because if you frame it the wrong way, As I learned in that occasion, I was still thinking I was arguing as though I was in government, which is how you would frame the problem, that I'd framed it the wrong way. That was a very good learning because now I think about if I'm going to speak to anybody or want to convince them of anything, I think about who they are. I think about what their hot buttons are. I think about what is it I could do to shift their position or, you know, whatever it is. And that's how I argue it. It's less about the gender of the audience than it is about the the framing of issues for an audience.
3: Interesting. And you, you talked there about paid maternity yeah. leave. And for listeners who don't know, you were the pioneer in introducing paid maternity leave into Australia's private sector. Tell us about what started
1: that and how you reacted. <laughs> so when I came into Westpac, which is you know a big Australian bank, the CEO at the time who'd hired me in said, I want us to be an employer of choice. And at that time, staff took their uniforms off before they went home. So we were definitely not an employer of choice. And that was the task I was set. I had actually been arguing about paid maternity leave while I was in government because there was a proposition that had gone to Cabinet that the Australian government roll out a scheme very similar to the Scandinavian schemes where government funds maternity leave, not just for its own employees, but for everybody. And so that was rattling around in my head already and that was the argument that I was I have just described so we went away and did the research on it no australian company private sector company had done it in fact they were arguing that the sky would collapse if it was done that all go broke it was a terrible idea what would the men do you can imagine all the arguments so that was the argument i took to the executive initially on the grounds of equity and fairness and then backed out of the room at a million miles an hour and then came back in with the proposition that, and it, and the numbers did work, if we lifted our return to work rate by only 10%, it would pay for itself in one year. Now, that's a compelling business case in any company and we delivered five times more than that. And the amazing thing was everyone who had only five minutes before been saying Australia's corporate culture would collapse if there was paid maternity leave it was like a domino effect. Nobody could bear to leave one of the biggest companies out on their own with this amazing thing had happened. And suddenly it went bang, bang, bang. And within two years, virtually every company in Australia had rolled out paid maternity leave, which has subsequently become paid parental leave and is now generally longer than the initial 12 weeks. So women of Australia have a lot to thank you for, Anne. <laughs> It was a team of people. It was a great problem to solve and it did change the face of corporate Australia. So yeah, it was an amazing thing to be able to do.
3: I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't ask a story that's hot in the news at the moment following Australia's had a big royal commission into banking and you're on the board of one of the top 4 banks in Australia the National Australia Bank how is it operating in an environment that must be extremely challenging like that as a non non-executive director
1: Well it's certainly really challenging and the royal commission was very challenging as well so I'm a relatively new NED on that board and I've sat through it probably with some of the same, with, certainly with trepidation, but also with some of the same horror in a way that everyone externally has. So three things I'd say about that. One is I sat on the board of ING Group in Amsterdam for a couple of years after the European banks had been in huge difficulty post the global financial crisis. So I'm not completely new to the rebuilding of bank reputations and in fact, almost selling off pieces of the business because ING was forced to sell its insurance business, its superannuation business and a whole lot of other things after the global financial crisis. And that's now a business that is reshaping itself as a, a world leader in digital banking and so on. So I've seen what's possible, if you like. So I sort of I looked at that. Every time I was feeling glum, I thought about that and thought there's a way forward. The second thing though, is that these are really difficult times. And in a way, I've been through enough crises to see a potential path forward. It may not be the absolute path forward and I'm not driving every component of it, but you know, we're demonstrating that we've listened to some of the criticism. We're keen to demonstrate that we have the capacity to change and we've got to demonstrate that we can manage customers and regain trust very quickly. But you do that by doing the basics much, much better. So I think there's a sense of what the path might be. We're in the midst of the worst of it at the moment, which is the uncertainty having had a CEO step away and chairman say he's going to step down as well. And, but we've got to stay the course because it's a really important business in Australia. We're one of Australia's top 10 companies. We employ tens of thousands of people. And if for no other reason than our obligation to the people who work for us, the people who've invested in us, and all of our customers, millions of customers, we've just got to do it much better. And we've got to rethink what we're doing to make sure that happens. So I actually am very focused on what is it we need to do to rebuild trust and to rebuild the reputation because I fundamentally think we've got an obligation to make that happen and to happen now. Sounds like you're really going to be drawing on your carnival cruises experience as well. I've done it in a couple of places and I think I have some experience. I'm not sure I have all the experience, but there's a very good group of people on that board. And I think there's a lot of collective wisdom and we need to bring it all to bear.
3: So if we think back to your career think back to your 30 year old self or give or take 5 years if you like what advice and what would you tell yourself with the wisdom that you have today looking back
1: well i'd probably reinforce some of the things that i maybe had already come to with one extra piece of advice so the things i'd reinforce is that it's worth taking risk and i think lots of us particularly women are taught not to take too much risk to think about everybody else, not to think first about ourselves, but to think about others, which causes us to be a bit risk averse. So I'm really pleased I've taken all the risks that I've taken. So I'd say keep going, maybe do more if they come your way. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, everyone needs the anchor of support around them. And whether it's a you know, life partner or whatever it is, you shouldn't discard that as you go. So I also I often watch people discard friends, family, you know, people they knew when they were younger because they don't quite fit their view of themselves as they move up and on, and I've never done that. I've got many, many friends that I've had for my entire life and I love them as much now as I did then and I they may see me slightly differently, but I don't think of those relationships differently. So I'd say friends are not for discarding nor a family. And the third thing I'd say, which is something that I'd probably speak to myself more harshly about, is understand your value. Because again, I grew up in an environment where we didn't talk much about money and I wasn't taught to talk about money. And partly because of the jobs and industries my parents were in, it just wasn't the way it worked. I knew how much you know the shop was profitable. I knew that stuff. But in terms of what you pay, what you got paid in a corporate type environment, I just didn't understand that until I got into it. It's a skill, actually, as well as a confidence thing, but it's also a skill that somehow men are taught younger and they talk to each other about it a lot. Women don't talk to each other about that much at all. So I would say to myself, understand how you ask for what you're worth and also understand how you think about money over the long term. Great advice,
2: Anne, thank you so very much for your time. It's been so fascinating learning about your career and your experiences and what's made you who you are. If our listeners wanted to find out more about you,
1: how would they do that? I think if you Google me, you find a lot. That's for sure. (laughs) I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. So I'm pretty accessible. Fantastic. Well,
2: thank you again. And good luck going into the rest of the day.
1: Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I love how resilient and strong Anne's been right from the get-go. It's really hard to imagine the strength it took walking up there to the kindergarten gate with her son, with all those disapproving mothers. Absolutely. And she was so young at
3: the time, it really was enormous strength. Yeah, wasn't it was it?
2: absolutely incredible where she got that from.
3: I loved on that note how she talked about how knowing oneself really matters and what truly matters to you was a key in enabling her to sort of have the strength to be resilient and to make choices in her life going forward. I thought that was a really meaningful point because in our busy lives I think it's something we can all tend to sometimes undercook
2: and give too short shrift to. Yeah no I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. Well So that's this episode done and dusted. Remember to please leave us a review, maybe on iTunes or wherever you listen, as it really matters to us. We want to hear what you think. Yes, we do. And
3: stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks' time where we feature the incredibly talented and popular chef-turned-California-girl foodie sensation who has numerous cookbooks and hundreds of thousands of social media followers and fans. And I'm talking about the one and only Garby Dawkin.
2: Yes, indeed. She's going to be fantastic. See you then. Ciao for now.